And now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, a special hello goes out to the director of media for the Boston Bruins alumni, Mr. Mark Boland. Nice to see you, Marky. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the home of behind-the-scenes interviews, stories, and memories that celebrate the heritage of the great game of hockey. The Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast is hosted by Mark Willand. Episode 27 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features Phil Meir, goaltender who played over 400 NHL games in 14 seasons with the Montreal Canadiens, Atlanta Flames, St. Louis Blues, Philadelphia Flyers, Colorado Rockies, and Buffalo Sabres. Phil was selected by the Canadians in the first round, fifth overall in the 1966 draft. He played parts of three seasons with the Habs before being chosen by the Atlanta Flames in the 1972 expansion draft. Phil and Dan Bouchard were an outstanding 1-2 tandem in goal for the next six seasons. Individually, Phil's finest NHL season came in 1974-75 when he recorded five shutouts and a 2.85 goals against average for the Flames. Now, later in his career, Phil helped backstop the Philadelphia Flyers to an incredible 35-game unbeaten streak. After retiring as a player, Phil moved on to an impressive career as a goaltending coach with many teams, including the Red Wings, Kings, and Florida Panthers. Now, Phil is now a sports consultant and inspirational speaker. You can visit his website at philmeertalkshockey.com. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Phil Meir. We're back on the show with Phil Meir and what a career he has had, both as a player, a coach, a consultant, and as a keynote speaker. And it's a great thrill to have you here today, Phil. Thanks so much for putting the time aside for us. Yeah, my pleasure, Mark. Phil, how does a, a young kid in Quebec... Uh, decide at some point to become a goaltender. <laughs> <laughs> You're going way back here now. Uh, you know, it's my, the, 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 how I became a pro hockey player is a little bit uh, unusual uh, because I lived in a small town uh, just uh, west of Montreal up until I was 12 years old, and I never really played organized hockey. Hmm. Uh, in that town, they, they, you know, there wasn't much in those days. And but skating, uh, skated every day. Though we had a nice rink uh, across the street from my house that all the kids in the neighborhood used to take care of. And we, we were on the ice any free time we had. We were on the ice. And then when I moved to Montreal, um, I was 12 years old, and um, I moved to the suburbs of Montreal in La Salle, and. Uh, uh, it's funny because it was at a, at a bus stop. You know, people remember certain days in their life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to me, this day, I remember it was a chilly September morning when I was 12 years old at a bus stop when this kid asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, you know, I had some plans to go do something. But he said, I'm going to my tryouts. And I said, tryouts for what? <laughs> And he said, hockey. I said, you have to try out to play hockey? <laughs> you know. So anyways, my long story short, I went to the tryout. Uh, luckily, well, he asked me, he said, what position do you play? I said, I can play anywhere. But when I was back in that small town of, of Rigo, 
there was uh, the one kid that had a, a set of goalie equipment, and he didn't like to play goal anymore. So I used to always wear that equipment. And I was always the goalie on the street. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And I used to throw a ball against the wall and pretend I was Terry Sauchuk or Jacques Plante in my house, too. You know, I right. always loved goalies. So I told him, hey, you know, I, I can play anywhere, but I can play goal, too. Oh, he says, good. He says, our goalies suck. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anyways, long story short, I um, I went to the tryouts and, of course, made the team. And then the next year... Uh, we won a tournament, and I, a scout from the Boston Bruins asked me to go to Victoriaville, the training camp. And, uh, you know, at 14 years old, I'm, I went to a junior training camp in Victoriaville and borrowed the equipment. Of course, they, in those days, they supplied the goalie equipment. We played for the parish. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So I went to the parish and borrowed the goalie equipment, and I went to a junior training camp with the Parish goalie equipment, but no goalie skates. And anyways, uh, ended up making the team, playing five years of juniors, winning the Memorial Cup, and signing and getting drafted by Montreal. <laughs> so, well, that's a pretty uh, incredible story. It kind of all starts yeah. at, at a bus stop and, somewhere. Uh, yeah, I always, I often wonder, you know, where my life would have been, where I, I, I would be today if I hadn't been at that bus stop that day. That is pretty incredible and pretty humbling, too. Yeah, because you, 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 yeah you, it you is. Never, you, you never know. know. The, things were different in those days, you know. Obviously, now the <clears throat> kids have to play uh, AAA hockey, and and they, they become stars before they... You know, before they're drafted. They get mm-hmm. drafted by the junior teams, and things were different. And and um, But, you know, it was fate, really. That um, that brought me here. Absolutely. Well, you end up with quite yeah. a junior hockey team in Niagara Falls, which that first year, uh, a lot of future Bruins, including Derek Sanderson, uh, mm-hmm. on that team very well. And Hap Ems is your coach. Yep. I am w- w- friends with Gary Swain, and he w- would tell me of Hap Ems stories, one of which was if he felt you guys weren't necessarily ready to play, he would have the bus park a couple of miles away from the rink you were playing in that night, and, just, and regardless of the weather, that you would walk in the cold to get you guys up and ready to play your, your game. Was that a true story? Oh, definitely. Yeah, we always walked. We, you know, if we traveled to Peterborough or Oshawa or, you know, from Niagara Falls, yeah, he'd always stop the bus. Uh, I don't, I can't remember how far it was, you know, when you're, you know, for 18 years old, you don't, really count the miles but it, it might have been a half a mile or something you know it seemed longer than <clears throat> than it really was but oh yeah he used to let us walk and it's probably you know in retrospect not a bad thing right um you know and uh you know hap was a good coach you know he um he had a, a good way to to make people play at their best and uh he had a good way to pick people to to play together, you know, and um, you know the one thing he, he's always said, he won two Memorial Cups and at least in Niagara Falls and and lost one, mm-hmm. and each one of them was a, with a French Canadian goalie. Right, right. Most of the year, your your yeah. your team was basically kids from Ontario, and a, yeah. a, a few French Canadians mixed in, yourself included. But in year two. 
you uh, a lot of future whalers, uh, Gary Swain, Tom Webster, Rick Lee, Brad Selwood, uh, yourself, a lot of a lot of talent on that team, and you end up going all the way, winning the Memorial Cup. And yeah. explain a little bit about about that experience. Uh, it really was a obviously it's it's a huge deal in Canada, but you're playing the uh, teams from other parts of the country. And uh, exp- tell me about your memories of of winning it all as in Memorial Cup. Well, you know things were different then, obviously. But uh, if I go back to my days in in uh, in the Quebec League, you know I played five years of junior and won four championships mm-hmm. uh, as a junior, and I played in the Memorial Cup uh, when I was in the Quebec League. And oh. That's the first time, as a matter of fact, that in those days you'd play for the East. We, we we'd play the East. There was the the Provincial League, the Metropolitan League, and there was a, a league out uh, Nova Scotia. It was kind of an ind- independent team. And we had to win the East, and then the West had to win the West. Um, and uh, and, win- and playing for the East, we then after we won the Quebec, we had to play Ontario. And that's the first time I played against Bobby Orr. Oh. Uh, he, was, he was playing for the Oshawa Generals. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, uh, you know, Oshawa won. But um, we gave him a good go, you know, and that's the f- I think that's the first time that Bobby Orr hurt his knee because I think he uh, he didn't play. He had to go out and play the West after they beat us, mm-hmm. and um, he didn't play the whole series, or he missed. He might have played one game in that series uh, against uh, Edmonton, I think it was. But anyway, so I you know I kind of escalated to the, the summit because in my last year junior. Uh, we ended up winning the Memorial Cup, and you know what I remember the most of that year or that series of that experience really was was winning our own league because mm-hmm. there were two teams who were who were super superpowers were the Montreal Junior Canadiens and the Kitchener Rangers, and we barely finished. Um, I think we finished in fourth place, just just enough not to have to play one of those teams in the <laughs> first round. Right. And uh, we ended up beating Montreal in the semifinals, and they had an outstanding team, you know, with Hull and Tardif, and, and uh, I think Gilbert Perrault was just mm-hmm. an up-and-coming guy. They had Guy Lapointe, and, you know, they were strong. And uh, <clears throat> we beat them, and then uh, we beat Kitchener, who had beaten us all year long. We didn't beat them one game in, in uh, the whole season, and we ended up... Uh, Beating uh, beating them in eight games because there were no overtimes then. Oh wow! It was it was the first team with eight points. That's oh that's amazing. And, and I forgot had, about that. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think one of the games was tie was a tie, and anyway we beat them in eight games and uh, like, like they were big, they were tough, they were talented, and um, you know it was. Uh, the best memory of that whole experience was beating those two teams. And then, it, you know, when when we played the West, uh, we played Estevan uh, from the West, and the whole series was in uh, Niagara Falls. But uh, we played one game in uh, Montreal because Montreal that year broke attendance record, and they felt that if they brought the Memorial Cup to Montreal, maybe they would get, you know, ten or 12,000 people, and mm-hmm. it didn't really happen. Uh, short notice, and you know the 
people didn't know the teams. And but anyway, we went out there to play a game. But the the biggest thing that happened too is that both teams were Boston Bruins uh, affiliates. Right. Because then the NHL teams used to sponsor the junior teams. So um, Estevan and Niagara Falls belong or belonged or were sponsored by the Boston Bruins. In the very first uh, warm-up, very first game in the Niagara Falls Arena, both teams came out for warm-up wearing the same uniform. Oh. <laughs> same colors, different crest. Right. <clears throat> and, um, you know, they had to decide, you know, who would wear the whites and who would wear the... It was a gold uniform. Mm-hmm. And then after the first game, they said, oh, there, there isn't enough contrast between the two. So we had to wear the um, St. Catharines Blackhawks jerseys. Wow. Series. And when we played in Montreal, we ended up wearing the Montreal Canadiens jersey. And that actually was the first time I had been drafted by Montreal. It was the first time that I wore the Montreal Canadiens jersey in a game. Interesting. Yeah. And uh, finally, in the final game, um, I remember that... Uh, as the minutes were winding down in the final game that we were winning by five goals uh, in the third period, uh, the guys used to go into the dressing room, you know, when they weren't on the ice to change their jerseys so that when we win the cup, we could wear our own jerseys. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> so at one time, there might have been some guys on the ice with the St. Catharines jersey Blackhawks, Niagara Falls Blackhawks on the same team. Well, know? I've never heard that. That's that is a very interesting yeah. piece of hockey. But as yeah. you as you noted, yeah. you're number one draft pick by none other than the Montreal Canadiens. You spent right. your first year of minor pro in Houston, and I was curious. This is about five years before the World Hockey Association arrows came to Houston, and I was curious about what hockey was like in Houston, Texas, in the 1960s. Oh my, you know, I, I was a 19-year-old going to Texas, you know, from a small town uh, Quebec. So <laughs> it was it was all hockey, you know. Um it was all focused on hockey and very little um you know, exploring the area. Uh and it was a busy, you know, busy season. So I don't remember very much about Houston itself. You know, was, uh, was, but was the, we uh, played it in the old Sam Houston Coliseum, right? Um, which was an old arena. I guess it was adequate, but uh, the, the viewing areas weren't very good. Um, you know, and the fans would come out. I, I, I don't really remember uh, filling up the building, but there were fans there. You know, it, it was. I don't know how popular it was. Like I said, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the outside of of our own focus of the game. Um, but um, it was different, certainly, and, and a, quite a learning experience. Guy Lapointe was my roommate. We got an apartment together. and mm-hmm. um, I know we ate a lot of hamburgers. The uh, nutrition yeah. standards are a little bit different uh, in the 1960s, yeah. but what was it like? Yeah. I mean, you, you, I, I can't imagine what it's like for a young man like yourself going to training camp with the Montreal Canadiens, storied franchise, legendary players, playing against grown men. 
now for the for the for the first time out of, out of junior what was your experience like going to montreal canadians training camp there in the late 60s for the first time well i gotta tell you the first time i walked into montreal canadians dressing room um you know having grown up as you say i've been growing up in that area uh you know john Bellavo was like you know there was there was God, and then there was John Bellow. And, <laughs> and then depending on, you know, certain days, you know, it might have been the reverse. But uh, mm-hmm. the first time I walked into the dressing room, I ran into John Bellow, and it was like I had to pick up my jaw from the floor, you know, and then mm-hmm. say, oh, uh, Mr. Bellow. And, and he was so, so uh, kind and uh, so inviting he knew who I was, which I was surprised, and you know, took me around the dressing room, introduced me to the trainers, and uh, showed me around. And it was, you know, you talk about leadership. Um, you know, that was leadership. But anyways, um, Montreal in those days had two farm teams. There was 110 players at training camp. Nice. So you know, today, if you look at today, there's at least you know. Uh, more than half of that, you know, if, if a team has 50 players at training camp, it's probably a lot. Mm-hmm. We had 110 players at training camp. Uh, they had a team in the American League in Cleveland, and they had a team in Houston. And uh, they they would send their younger players to Houston and, and the veteran players in the, in the American League. And, uh, yeah, so I went to Houston, you know, played with... Um, like, like I just said, uh, uh, Guy Lapointe was my roommate. Uh, uh, who else was there? Uh, Phil Roberto. Um, no, no, wait a minute. No, Phil Roberto would have been the next year. No, no, no Phil was there. Um, well, Jude Drew and we, you know, we had a decent team. Yeah, Boom Boom Karan. Uh, boom Boom Karan, yeah. He was <laughs> one of our veteran guys, played with a stick about three feet long. <laughs> It had a really, really short stick, uh, but he was one of our veteran guys, and uh, you know, it, did, it was quite an experience. And your backup that year wasn't half bad, Tony Esposito. <laughs> yeah, well, no, he wasn't quite a backup, but uh, yeah, he we we turned pro the same year, and I was nineteen or twenty, and turned twenty, and he was like twenty-five because he came out of college, and right. he was a little bit older. And um, yeah, we roomed together for a while on the road, and uh, um, it was an experience to, to to play with him because you know he had a different style and a different uh, preparation for the games, and uh, I considered him more of a veteran than I because he was older than me, mm-hmm. you know. So so you know I took a lot of pointers from him. Phil, nineteen sixty nine seventy, you make your debut with the Canadians in the NHL. Do you remember your your first game? Was it at home? It was at home. Uh, I believe the first time I played in a game, I, I replaced Rogie in the third period. Uh, and I believe it was against the Oakland Seals. And, um, yeah, so I played like um, one period. That was the first time that I actually played in a game. And then uh, my first full game, I think, was against St. Louis. But uh, you know, it's, it's kind of it's kind of vague. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're you're um, 
I do remember my first shutout, though, was in the the very first game in the Buffalo Auditorium. Oh, wow. With, uh, with Buffalo. Um, that was the following year. Mm-hmm. Buffalo came into the league, and the very first game that was played in the auditorium was against the Canadians, and I played in that game and uh, shut them out. I believe it was 3 nothing. And uh, I like to say that I stood on my head and won the game by myself, <laughs> but uh, I had 14 shots. <laughs> um, but there were 14 good shots, though, you know. <laughs> Um, just I wanted to take a step back real quickly when you uh, that 69-70 season your uh, your second year pro you also play for uh, the Montreal Voyageurs and Mm -hmm. that team was for a team in the American Hockey League was incredibly talented and I believe you won the Calder Cup that year if I recall did you guys go all the way Uh, well yeah I I only played there uh, up until uh, December there was quite a few of us that were uh, that started on that team. Mm-hmm. I think Reza Hull and Tardif and Roberto and uh, La, I don't know about Guy Lapointe, but uh, Pierre Bouchard. We we all played a few games with the Voyagers. But in my case, uh, um, Rogie Vachon and Gump Worsley were the goalies of Montreal, and they had traded Tony Esposito. So I was kind of the third in line, and uh, Gumper retired in December. Oh. You know, and he'd had enough. You know, he wasn't wearing a mask, and it was the days of the of the banana sticks. You know, there was no mm-hmm. limit to the sticks, and the puck would play tricks on you, and it would drop and curve. And and finally, Gumper said he had enough. So I was kind of brought up much earlier than anticipated. Because I was expected to play at least a couple of years in the minors and then make my way up and replace uh, uh, Gump Worsley. But uh, Gumper retired and then re- returned like two or three years later with Minnesota mm-hmm. with a mask. <laughs> right. Yeah. Briefly. And um, so, yeah, I, uh, it was a great team in retrospect. It, you know, if I, if I had to have a choice... In retrospect, it probably would have been better for me to play the whole year there. Because I ended up only playing 10 games with the Canadians that year. Right. Well, the next year, 70-71, you do get a, in the regular rotation. Of course, you came Correct. into the Montreal Canadiens organization at a time when, at various times of your stay there, you were with four future Hall of Famers, with Tony Espo, uh, Rogie, Gumper, and then eventually Ken Dryden. Over 70-71, you get your time to shine. You play 30 games during the regular season. And towards the end of the season, of course, Ken Dryden comes on the scene. And we're talking a little bit, I want to talk to you a little bit about overcoming obstacles as a young professional. And um, here's an example of keeping a disciplined mindset on your your part. 70-71, Dryden comes in, plays all the playoffs. The team wins the Stanley Cup. The following season, season 71-72, Kenny plays 90% of the games uh, with you backing up. So you've gone from playing, you know, an irregular rotation to much less. So my question mm-hmm. for you as a goaltender and a young pro, how are you mentally preparing, knowing that you're not going to play a lot, uh, the importance of practice and the importance of staying on top of your game when you're not playing regularly? 
Well, I, I tell you, it was difficult. Um, and one of the things in those days, you know, um, there was one coach, and then they added an assistant coach later on. But there wasn't the guidance that the players have today. In other words, you know, today, you know, they've got the head coach, they've got three assistant coaches, they have a, a psychologist, they have a, a mental strength coach, they have, a, mm-hmm. you know, they have people that you can go to. And, and in a goalie's case, you have a goalie coach that you can go to to help you deal with all of these things. Uh, when I played in the era that I played from, you know, I played from the late 60s to the uh, mid mid 80s, that didn't happen. You know, right. You're on your own. If there was maybe a teammate on the team that you trusted, that you, his judgment, then maybe you could confide in him. But it it was very rare. So, you know, you had to deal with these things by yourself. And a lot of times, you, you know, you don't always deal with it you know, the way you should, and you learn from it. And, and then, you know, you make mistakes and you say, oh, I shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have thought mm-hmm. that way, you know, and you you need to start controlling what your thoughts are, you know, to stay positive and right. stay positive because it's very easy when you're not playing. And particularly in Montreal, um, the most exposure I had in the in the media was when I wasn't playing. When I was playing, there, you know, there was hardly any exposure around me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but all of a sudden, when I'm not playing, they've got all of those questions and all of those uh, highlights, you know. Well, you know. So you got to deal with the media and you got to deal with, with um, being ready and deal with your teammates. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, you, in those days, you kind of learned along the way by yourself, by trial and error. Right, and you know, it, it takes a, a tough skin sometimes. You know, to uh, all of a sudden you haven't played in a month, and you're you got to go in there, right, and perform. You know, and and it's it's tougher when you're young. You know, you're 21 or 22 years old. Uh, you haven't really established yourself in the league yet. Mm-hmm. It's it's easier. Shouldn't say easier, but it's easier to handle when you're older and you've been around and like I when I went in Buffalo late in my career and didn't play a whole lot I was able to handle that much better than um, I did when I was 22 mm-hmm. um, so yeah it's it, it's not easy and um, particularly in those days you have to kind of deal with it by, you know by yourself absolutely well you get a Great break in your career. The NHL expands in 1972 to Atlanta and Long Island, and you are chosen to play hockey in the Deep South with the Atlanta Flames. And, of course, now this is uh, where, I I guess, when you really have a chance to blossom. The Flames make a great decision as an expansion team that has to sell themselves down south. They start out by solidifying the goaltending situation right away and become a respectable team right away. What was it like, I guess, right, right off the bat? First of all, I'd like to ask you about Boom Boom... I should say Bernie, Bernie Boom Boom Jeffrey on. And uh, what was it like uh, playing for him? Obviously, you knew a lot about him being a, uh, 
uh, a kid growing up in in, uh, in in Quebec in the Montreal area. But, but he was quite a character. And what was he like to play for? Well, Boom Boom was probably the the, the best coach for the situation that we had there. <clears throat> Cliff Fletcher was a manager, and he drafted a lot of character players, um, but limited in skills. Mm-hmm. Um, so the guys knew how to play. They knew how to get ready. Uh, we competed hard every night. And with the Boomer's role, he wasn't a very technical coach. Um, matter of fact, there was very little you know, technique done and at the beginning, there was no assistance. He was the only guy. Mm-hmm. And but he, what he would do, what he was good at, was motivating people. And I mean, you got a picture of the boomer. Um, he looked like a million bucks every day. You know, like, <laughs> like every day, he had shoes shine, hair trimmed, games. He had a, the three-piece suit, the diamond cufflinks. He looked like a million bucks every day, and he believed in his players, and he. He really, you know, instilled a lot of confidence in guys who were, you know, the 19th and 20th player on on the other teams. You know that uh, before they were, we were drafted by the by the uh, expansion team. Mm-hmm. So I think for those three years, uh, he was the perfect guy for the for the job. And uh, you know, we obviously I was paired with Danny Bouchard for for the six years that I was there and. And we never finished worse than sixth in goals against right. in the six years that I was there with uh, Danny and I. I think the word I always and, looked at when I look back at that duo is consistency. I mean, every yeah. every year you guys performed well for that franchise as pieces were moved around you and things were changing here and there. You could always count on Dan Bouchard and Phil Mayer to provide solid goaltending. Goal well, we had a tough time scoring, but uh, like I said, we never finished worse than sixth in the league in goals against. So, and you talk about building character. I mean, we were we were friends, and I mean, we basically came from the same area in, where I moved when I was 12 years old. Danny came from LaSalle, and that's where I moved when I was 12. And um, you know, you talk about building character. I mean, we competed for ice time for six years. Uh, I don't think that one, the most that one of us played was 42 games in one season. Yeah, it was very, un- us, very unique situation, wasn't it? Yeah, and both of us played. We played six. We sick. We played hurt. We didn't want to give the other guy really a chance to play multiple games in a row because we knew that either one of us had the the capability of doing that and and succeed. Well, that's a great lesson so, for you too, and, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that's a great lesson yeah. to you as well. When you're talking about, when you're talking to companies or, or kids about teamwork, where you're able to marry two different emotions at the same time: your level of competitiveness because you want to be uh, getting your share of of the ice time and, and playing time. At the same time, working cooperatively with Danny Bouchard and being friends and teammates at the same time, it's not easy for a lot of human beings to do. You're able to do it for six years. Well, yeah. And that, um, you know, it's kind of a friendly competition. Uh, you're on the same team and you, you know, you, you want to win and uh, you want to do what's best for the team. And, but at the same time, you want to be the guy, you know, right. and uh, that's why you become a goalie because 
kids become goalies because they want to be the guy. They become pitchers because they want to be the guy. They become mm-hmm. quarterbacks because they want to be the guy. And, you know, goaltending is, is no different. And uh, obviously, you want to play every game. So when you're not, then you're competing for ice time. I wanted to ask you about a, a couple of teammates, and the first is Ken Houston, who you obviously has, has passed away earlier this year, and you went recently to a rink dedication for him in Ontario. Can you talk a little bit about that event, first of all, and second of all, what Ken Houston was like as a teammate and a person? Yeah, no, the event was great. Uh, you know, they did a great job in presenting it. It's a really small community. I think there's about 3,000 people uh, where Kenny is from. And um, they really did a good job, and uh, I think the whole town was there almost. You know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, they they dedicated the arena uh, to, as the Ken Houston um, Agricultural Center or something. Uh, and it was a great event. Uh, they had the presentation at the arena, then they had a uh, dinner dance, and uh, uh, <clears throat> you know they they raised money um, for. Um, minor hockey in the area mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a Kenny, Ken Houston Foundation that, that helps out there and uh, yeah it was an outstanding event and uh, unfortunately I had my wife and I were um, out of the country when for the memorial when he passed away and mm-hmm. we weren't able to go and uh, so we made a point to go to this event and no uh, Ken was uh, was uh, he had a lot of character, you know. He came and he first played in the minors, and you know he he was very uh, patient. He came to training camp one year and I sent him down the minors, and then he came to training camp again and he sent him down the minors, and and eventually he made it, and uh, you know so he showed a lot of character in in, in um, stay sticking with it, right. Know? And uh, no, he was a quiet guy, but he was a tough guy. Uh, he had the big mitts, you know, big, <laughs> big hands, and and uh, he was a really he had a dry humor about him. Didn't say much, but once in a while he'd throw out the odd uh, two-word joke kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, he liked to have a good time with the with the team, and uh, he always stuck stuck up for his teammate and. Uh, uh, had a lot of respect for him, and and uh, him living in Dresden, Ontario, which is only a couple hours from where I live in Michigan. Um, he uh, he used to come to some of the uh, Red Wing alumni events, mm-hmm. and uh, so we spent some time uh, together before he passed away too. That's good. You know, he didn't always have it easy. He wasn't a uh, he wasn't a bad player at all. But back in that era, some teams would load up with goons or whatever and the the flames did not and so a player like him uh, like ken houston had to handle a lot of that when things got uh, a little bit out of hand and he did so did so very very well yeah well eventually you know cliff fletcher built a really big physical team eventually right but it, it took time you know the first three years we you know that was the area of of the big bad bruins and the uh the uh, Broad Street bullies and all that stuff, and uh, there was a lot of intimidation going on, and and uh, it took Cliff, you know, about three years to be able to build a team that could compete with these people, and uh, you know, we ended up getting a guy like Ken Houston, and uh, you know, uh, uh, a 
Kurt Bennett and uh, uh, Willie Platt. And, right. Uh, you know, we, we had some some tough characters that uh, that eventually came on the scene and were able to compete with this uh, you know this intimidation that was going on in the mid seventies. One of the player that you played with for a long time who uh, passed away a few years ago now. I'd like to get your remembrance of Tom Lysiak. Well, Tom was the ultimate athlete. I mean, he he was so good. He and he could have been uh, he could have been a star in today's game. I think he would have been a star. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very skilled. He was strong. He was tough. He was he could shoot. He could score. He could do it all. Um, you know, and he needed a little bit more consistency, which I think he could have had in today's game because of the better coach. I'm not saying better coaching, but the more there's more coaching today. You know, um, and a lot more guidance uh, in today's game. And Tommy, I think, with the right guidance, would have been a superstar. Even though you know he was a top player, um, yeah. And I remember his first goal. As a matter of fact, you know, he scored his first goal. And just to tell you how you know humble he was, he, he you know he didn't really care about honors. He didn't pick up the puck, and one of the teammates picked up the puck, and and so he kept it. And then uh, one time we had uh, a get together, and um. I don't know how exactly it happened, but he gave the puck to my wife. Oh. He said, I, "I don't want this. You, you can have it." You know, and my and my wife kept it all these years. Wow! And um, we kind of lost touch. You know, we, we we talked a few times, and I told him, "Hey, I, I have your puck." He says, "That's okay. You know, hang on to it." But um, we ended up uh, going to an alumni event, and Tommy's wife was there, and. And we brought the puck and we gave it to her, and she was really happy. Wow, that's beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Phil, your career in 77-78 with the Atlanta Flames uh, concludes. You are traded to the St. Louis Blues. And I was curious, did that trade surprise you? And how were you informed of the uh, the transaction? Well, you know, you knew something was going on because, I mean, Danny and I had been together six years, and... and um, I guess Danny had been to the papers saying that he wanted to play more. And so, you know, you know, something was going to happen. So, uh, no, it's just a phone call. You know, you've been traded. And uh, then you get the phone call from the general manager from the other team. And, uh, and they tell you to uh, talk to the travel person. And where you go. The next day you're wearing a blue uniform. There you go. How did, <laughs> so, so that it was interesting because that team – that team, you played well. You go over there, you do a real good job for them, but they can't score. They have yeah. a couple of young guys, you know, Brian Sutter, Bernie Federico, who are just starting, so they're not yeah. uh, anywhere near what they became. Team just could not score. You're holding it down in gold. The franchise is in a little bit of financial disarray. What was the experience like uh, as a member of the St. Louis Blues? Well, yeah, that was a different experience because I was playing all the games uh, early on uh, for the first year, and um, it was really the first time in my career that I was the guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, like you mentioned the the financial problems. Uh, the, that was right around the time that the Solomon sold the team, and there was no owner. Um, 
we lost that there was the World Hockey Association at that time. We lost a lot of the draft picks to the to the World Hockey Association. We lost some of the players on the team to the World Hockey, so it was pretty depleted. And uh, Ralston Purina kind of came in and, and bought the team. But uh, it, you know, like, and you mentioned Bernie Federico and uh, Brian Sutter. Uh, we had three or four good young players, but they were young. They were right. our best players, but they were young. So, yeah, so it, it was funny because I remember one time I was the player of the week, and I played three games, uh, gave up three goals, and never won a game. <laughs> so I, there was a 1-1 tie, a 2-1 a, a loss, and a 0-0 tie. I believe that was the, the case, you know. Right. And and uh, so I was player of the week without winning a game. Right. Well, you had to be so. near perfect in your yeah. career. Now, here's another good lesson. Uh, that your career, You end up getting traded to the Philadelphia Flyers, which, of course, is, is an entirely different experience. The head coach there is Pat Quinn. Now, Pat, of course, played uh, defense for the Atlanta Flames and knew you. I assume you had a very good rapport as your careers would kind of intertwine over the years. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, uh, first of all, before we get into the actual 79-80 season, can you talk a little bit about Pat Quinn? Well, you know, uh, Pat's probably the best coach I've ever played for. Uh, and I knew Pat probably better than anybody. Uh, we played together for six years in Atlanta. And then uh, <clears throat> he traded for me in Philadelphia. I played for him for two years. And then when I retired from playing, I went to Los Angeles and I was a coach with him for four years. Well, three years, actually, because he left after the third year. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, we did spend a lot of time together. And he made it pretty clear to me when I first went to Philadelphia that I was uh, I was there to provide some experience for the young kids that they were bringing up, which included uh, Pete Peters, um, uh, Rick St. Croix, and um, it was a goalie who died in a car crash. Oh, uh, Pelly Lindbergh. Pelly Lindbergh. And so, you know, that was my, my role, to to be there. And, and uh, Pete Peters had a much better year than anybody anticipated, and that's the year that we... We went on a 35-game unbeaten streak, which is still a record today. <clears throat> right. But uh, you know, going back to Pat, I mean, Pat was was a to me was the best coach I've ever played for. He he was ahead of his time as far as uh, system and, and rotations on the ice, and and uh, he brought in a lot of things. He was Pat was a thinker and, and uh, he initiated a lot of new things. He wasn't a coach that um, was very strict hands-on guy he, he he trusts his players he trusted his players to uh, to be ready to play and uh, of course we had good leadership in those uh, on that team with Bobby Clark and, and Bill Barber and uh, uh, you know a lot of a lot of guys that had leadership qualities uh, and uh, so uh, Pat uh, definitely was a guy that uh, made you think, and and he uh, he kind of lets you be yourself, kind of thing. Right. Well, I think also a good it's a good lesson because you developed a mutual respect 
as players, and then of course he was uh, a coach when you were a player, and then you coached together. So it's a great lesson about about building relationships and how that could benefit a, a, a person in business or in sports or wherever down the line. And that relationship certainly paid a lot of dividends for for both of you over time. Well, you know, you bring people you know and trust. Uh, you know, he he brought me into Philadelphia because he knew that I was a hard worker and I was a a guy who was ready to play every night, and and I was a team man, and he knew what he was getting, and then he hired me as a goalie coach, assistant coach, for the same reasons. And you know, in in many cases in the National Hockey League or in sport, pro sports, there aren't very very many jobs that are had based on uh, a paper resume. Right. You know, most coaches will bring in assistants that they know, that they trust, that they, you know, have a, <clears throat> a feeling for for how they're going to react to certain situations because, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, <laughs> it's a very demanding uh, career. A lot of ups and downs and, and uh, a lot of challenges along the way and, and you need people who, who uh, make good decisions and, and are prepared to, to face all of the uh, adversity. During that 79-80 season, as you noted, 35-game unbeaten streak, unprecedented probably because of the rules of the game today, will never be touched. Um, as you said, you had great leadership with Bobby Clark and um, Bill Barber, of course, and a couple of young kids. I just talked with uh, Brian Prop, a rookie that year. Kenny Linsman, yep. Kenny Linsman came on the scene. What was that? I, I guess he was what, a rookie that year. Absolutely. So, what's the mentality now? This is a, a somewhat different situation for you because you played for good, solid teams up to that point. Of course, you played for a great team in Montreal. This is an intimidating team still at that point. Uh, you, you get Paul Holmgren, you get Ben Wilson, you got some real mm. tough guys. Yeah. So my question is, what is it like? Can you feel when teams come into the spectrum at that point that you have an advantage before the game even starts from an intimidation level? Tough place to play. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I went in there with the, during the Broad Street Bully years in the in the early seventies, and and uh, certainly, uh, you know, the teams that I went in there with, it was uh, there was a lot of intimidation. Mm-hmm. You know, they called the Philly flu. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, a lot of times the guys got sick all of a sudden. You know, and mm-hmm. they called it the Philly flu. But uh, you know, the one thing about the Flyers is that. Uh, Ed Snyder built a great culture there, um, whereby you know a team stuck together uh, right from the beginning. Uh, even in the in the late '60s in the expansion, there was always a team that stuck together, and it was part of the reason was the the culture that Ed Snyder built. Um, and you know, without getting into too much details, but uh, he did put a lot of pressure on players to perform, but at the same time, you treated players very well uh, and when you did perform. And uh, we, had, we had good leadership in the team. I'll, I'll give you an example of leadership by Bobby Clark. Uh, we were about, and I don't know the number of games, I would say we were about uh, six or seven games into, into the streak. Mm-hmm. And we played two home games. I think it was uh, two Canadian teams. I think one was Vancouver, one was Edmonton. We won the games like 
I forget the scores, but we had to score five and six goals to win, and and we didn't play well, and won the two games, and put us like on a seven-game unbeaten streak or something like that. And I don't know the numbers exactly, but the next day after that second game, Bobby Clark called a players-only meeting. You know, and he said, "Guys, we play like this, we're not going to make the playoffs." Mm-hmm. So everybody's kind of looking, hey, we're on a seven-game winning, <laughs> unbeaten streak. You know, and Bobby Clark had that feeling and had that knowledge to say, hey, we didn't play well. Right. We didn't deserve to win. And if we continue on that path, we're going to lose. We're going to end up losing three or four games. And uh, so that kind of woke up everybody. And we continued to win. And then we started playing much better. And uh, so, you know, that was an example of the, the leadership we had in that room. And uh, another time when uh, I think we were down 5-2 to two in Pittsburgh, um, and we ended up winning the game 7-5, to five, and Bobby Clark had five points. Wow. And so, you know, he was a, a, a great uh, leader and a you know, great player. He's, to me, he was the player I hated the most to play against. <laughs> And the teammate I respected the most. Right. Well, I guess that would be and, the ultimate compliment. Yeah. Speaking of that, Phil, yeah. real, real quick, who was uh, – you played against everybody who was anybody in that generation, of course. Who was the best player you ever played against? Bobby Orr. No doubt about that? No, Bobby no Orr. doubt about it. Yeah. <laughs> didn't, hesitate, yeah. Did, 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 didn't hesitate on that one at all. Um, no, he's the best. I mean, I, a lot of respect for Wayne Gretzky. A lot of respect for Guy Lafleur and all these guys. I mean, there's some awesome players, you know. But to me, Bobby Orr had the most influence on the game, you know, from a defenseman standpoint. He won the scoring championship. Uh, he could uh, he could pass. He could skate. He could score. He could play physical. He could fight. He could do everything. And I, the, my my favorite analogy between him and Gretzky, and I think Gretzky is an awesome player. Um, if you bring a layman person who's never seen a game in his life and you watch Bobby Orr and Wayne Gretzky play, at the end of the game, that person who's never seen a game will say that Bobby Orr was outstanding because he carried the puck from one end to the other and he was back and he was very visible. Mm-hmm. Well, Gretzky was kind of subtle in his game. You could, you know, He was a great player, but he would... Didn't carry the puck a whole lot. He was always a you know give and go, and and being at the right place at the right time, and so smart, and so have such great vision. And but for me, um, from a total player, uh, you know Bobby Orr was the best, and obviously Gretzky's close second. But <laughs> right. Well, as I said, you you saw them all, and you, your career winds down with his days in Colorado and Buffalo, as you noted. I was curious. Um, when you, you you played for the Rochester Americans, you played for young coach Mike Keenan. And uh, what were your impressions of, of him back then before a lot of us really knew a lot about him? What what kind of coach is he like? Well, uh, there's a lot more than just that because I was obviously at the end of my career, and, and I was also an assistant coach with Mike. Right. So that story began because when when I got near the end of my career, I started planning to to be a coach. You know, I went to coaching clinics and I, I took the 
the coaching certification, and I wanted to be involved in hockey. So, and <clears throat> when uh, when Scotty Bowman hired me as the third goalie, um, he wanted me to play in Rochester, but he knew because I was been at a at a coaching clinic where Scotty was. Mm-hmm. He knew of my interest in coaching, so he said, "Hey, you can be an assistant coach with Mike." And Mike was great. Uh, you know, I, he was great to me. Uh, we we uh, we did win the Calder Cup, um, and he is a great coach. He got great practices. He knows the game. Uh, you know, he's got some. Uh, um, his motivation uh, philosophy might be different from many other coaches. Like sometimes he's. Mm-hmm. Uh, He's really tough on players, uh, but I'll tell you what—you know—he wins everywhere he goes. He wins, and uh, it's it's not because the players love him; because the players don't like him. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, you know, he wins. And um, there were times when I would always go in the office before I'd go and get dressed for practice, and he would tell me in advance. You know, he a few times he'd say, "Well, I I'm gonna." tell this guy off today he's you know he's whatever I'm going to tell him after I'm done he says here's what I want you to tell him (laughs) 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 and uh, I think you know he um, he didn't mind he wanted a team to rally around something right and if it if they rallied against him he didn't care and a lot of times, that's what that's what happened with Mike. The team rallied together, kind of against him, but at the same time, he was he kept coming, coming, and coming. And at the end of the day, they win. Right. And I, I enjoyed Mike. He was really good to me, and uh, it was a great experience to be with him. You've learned a lot. You played you played and coached with a lot of great coaches, and I'm assuming in your in your life, you were able to uh, assimilate a, a lot of the good points from each your coaching career, your your uh, scouting career in the NHL was was and it was very very long. The, the LA Kings, the Red Wings, great some great stops, Florida, uh, of course the Blackhawks, and uh, of course the Ottawa Senators day. Um, just I don't know I, that that's a whole show in itself, so we, we won't get into all the coaching. But my my question for you is when you are now coaching young kids at your career you've taken all you've learned and now you're especially with goalies I mean you had some situations where I think one year you were with Detroit Tim Shovelday played 72 games I think in Florida while you were there Roberto Luongo played 75 mm-hmm. um, so I guess my question is very somewhat vague is taking all you've learned what was your approach now to dealing with uh, young goaltenders. Well, I'll tell you a story of uh, my, my very first coaching job in in, in L.A. Um, I had two rookie goalies, uh, Bob Janisak and Darren Elliott, mm-hmm. and uh, two rookie goalies who you know didn't have the the high end uh, expectations at this point, uh, and. You know, as I came in there, I wanted to, you know, make all the corrections and and make them be as best the best they could be. And but what happened was, like, 
even on the ice, if they let in a goal in practice and uh, say on the short side, I'd walk over and say, hey, you know, you've got to correct your angle here. You weren't at the right place. And then mm-hmm. then I'd show them video. I'd show them the goals. And, and, and after about a month into that, I said, these guys must think I'm a total jerk <laughs> because every time I talk to them is because they made a mistake. Right. And so I decided that at that time that I would make a total 180 on this one and say, you know, let's establish what we're working on together, uh, the things that we want to do better, M- make sure that we recognize our assets, mm-hmm. what you do good, make sure we recognize the things that we want to do better, and then, you know, have a plan. And then, as they, if, when things happen, that they were doing the things that we wanted to, that we were working on, that's when I would dart to the game, to the goalie and say, hey, you know, how did you feel doing that? And the goalie say, yeah, yeah, that was great. Mm-hmm. And and so that's the philosophy I adopted. That um, I wanted to dwell on the on the on the asset, on the really focus on the assets, and then uh, build on uh, in a positive way. So that rather than you know when you're showing video, you you got to show the goals, but as soon as I recognized that they knew what they did wrong, if they did anything wrong, uh, we would move on and and I would show them something that did well in the game, you mm-hmm. know, and, and so to try to build that image and and to have some some key words that that you that you throw at them, you know, um, that uh, that players remember. Um, so. <laughs> it reminded me of a story one time when uh, I coached uh, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, Patrick Lalim. Like I always, the, the one thing I used to always, yeah, I, I like to have keywords, and one of the keywords was good stick, mm-hmm. good stick, and it, intercepting passes from behind the net with the stick. Right. And uh, it was one playoff game that uh, the play developed and um, Patrick had his stick and and intercepted the pass and the pass went on to one of our players and went down the ice and he scored. Mm-hmm. And and right away after the game, rather you know, rather than talk about the game, Pat, I walked into the dressing room and Patrick's laughed and he says, I thought about you. He said, good stick. I said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, that's good that you think about me in the game when, um, in a positive way. Absolutely. That, that's uh, extremely important. And now, among other things you're doing, you are uh, speaking to various businesses and groups and sharing some of these lessons that carry from not just, not just sports and hockey, but also life in general and business. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I enjoy doing it. I, I, I did it uh, for a while in uh, 2004 during the lockout. I started doing some of that stuff. And then uh, I did it again, uh, uh, I think around 2010 or 11, I did a few again. And, and uh, now I'm, uh, I'm I'm building up to it uh, again. And, uh, you know, I do uh, some schools. I do um, some corporate stuff um, and, and teams. Um I have kind of a keynote one that I do. I call the NHL and me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a non-theme uh, 
keynote thing, you know, where I tell a lot of stories, like, um, and I combine it with the NHL because I, I played in the late '60s uh, 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 on the day of the Great Expansion, right? All the way to the you know 2000, and I mean played and coached all the way to 2012. So there, a lot has happened in the leagues and, and during that time, and I kind of combine stories from you know when I played, when I coached, when I scouted to, with uh, the uh, different uh, growth of the National Hockey League. And then I do a couple other things, you know, where um, it has to do deal with uh, with leadership and motivation and peak performance and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you know, I do I try to do it through some stories. Um, and you know, it seems to attract some interest and um, try to you know uh, uh, bring in some ideas on leadership and motivation and things like that. And I talk about coaches and what their philosophy is. You know, I talk about Mike Keenan and, and mm-hmm. Scotty Bowman. And, uh, you know, um, as a matter of fact, one of the things I use is uh, Daryl Sutter's favorite quote <laughs> on uh, on leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, he always says, uh, uh, there's, there's three things you can do. You got to lead. You're going to lead. You're going to follow. Or get out of the get the hell out of the way. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, uh, Phil, uh, we're glad you've taken the the first part of that and uh, bringing a, a positive force to the world as you always had as a as a player and, and coach. I I do have one suggestion for you with all the because you were at the forefront of the most dynamic time in hockey history, the biggest changes and everything. Uh, you ever think about writing a book? I have, yeah. Uh, I, you know, I'm writing a, a few blogs now. I think you, you mentioned some, mm-hmm. one of the things you read. Uh, I mean, people can go into at uh, com and read some of my blogs. Um, and um, I'm starting doing that. And I'm, I'm writing some notes now. And who knows, maybe it'll come to fruition at some point, you know, where uh, just got to make sure I get the, you know, the right the right angle on it uh, because there's so many uh, sports books. Um, you know, I want to, something that people are going to get something out of it. Right. You know, because otherwise it's, you know, it's, it's not worth. So I got to find, you know, what it is that people are going to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And then from that idea, uh, like I've got a lot of notes that I've taken, but I've got to put them all together and, 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 make it worthwhile you know i just don't want to write a book to to write a book absolutely i'd well, like i'd like to have people benefit from them no doubt about it well there's a lot of sports books but there's only one phil Mir, so maybe you can put that in your 2019 goals and uh that'd be yeah. great but anyway uh i really want to say again thank you so much for the time today it was very interesting looking back at your career excited about what you're doing now we'll keep uh, on top of that and keep promoting that and hopefully we, we can stay in touch but again thanks so much for the time today phil we greatly appreciate it my pleasure thanks for having me thanks phil take care all right bye all right thanks for listening to the pro hockey alumni podcast be sure to visit us at prohockeyalumni.org